The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Gloria in Welcome to the Liturgical Year, Episode 2 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me today, as always, is Father Charles McGuire. Father, it's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's nice to be here again, Stephen. Thank you very much. Today, we're going to be talking about three things. We're going to talk about the Ember Days. We're going to talk about Ash Wednesday. And we're going to talk about the Vestition Prayers, what you do as you're getting ready for Mass. And I know, you know, people might think it's a bit of a downer. We, we just got through Christmas and we're already talking about Ash Wednesday, but obviously we're prepping for next month. So maybe put our happiness aside for a while and, and get serious about what's coming up. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, at the same time, we should obviously realize that Lent should be a joyful time for us in a sense not in a sentimental or natural sense of joy, but, you know, true spiritual joy that comes from, from serving God. And we'll find that out from the Ember Days that originally they were celebrated with great joy and solemnity, but mixed with penance, of course, too. But we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Well, and you've touched on the point I wanted to kick off with, Father, which is, you know, there's something in human nature that recoils from penance, really. But as Catholics, we should, uh, dare I say, run towards it. You know, we may not all be there in the spiritual life yet to run towards our penance. But you, you, you talked about the idea of joy. You know, why, what can we do to try to address that as we move forward in the spiritual life, as we move into a deeper understanding of the liturgy? How, do, how can we see penitential times as something where we can be joyful? And, and that ties into our very first discussion topic is, is how does that tie into the Ember Days? Well, the first thing is you have to look at penance from a more spiritual point of view. Like you said, we all uh, pull away from penance as much as we can. And that's because, well, it's, does what it's supposed to do. It hurts, it causes pain, discomfort, and, and all of the rest. So um, we have to have, first of all, a supernatural perspective that comes through meditation. That the more you meditate on the need for penance and the effects of penance, the more you understand it, you see a point in it, and it's not just to cause pain, then you automatically, you might say, have a sense of joy and peace from it. Because remember, the reason it causes pain is because 
ever since the fall of Adam, we're more inclined to evil than to good. The only way to fix that is to straighten out the spiritual compass, and that's only done by penance. Uh, you know, we're not like the, uh, <laughs> there's a story of Bishop Sheen. He told this story once in one of his sermons or catechism classes of his dog. He would teach his dog, he said, to fast. He would tell it, put a dish of food in front of him and tell him it's Lent. And the dog would not touch the food. But he would say it's Easter and the dog would immediately start eating. It's not that easy for us. But um, it should become gradually easier the more we meditate on the need of penance and the effects of it. Um, at the same time, and we'll get touch more and more on this, too, when we get to the Ash Wednesday part, as we go through the Epistle and Gospel of Ash Wednesday, um, where our Lord tells us in the Gospel to not be sad. Don't be sad as you do your fast, like uh, those who are trying to attract attention, those sorts of things. So I would say, first of all, to get a joy and satisfaction out of this is to meditate on the need for penance and its effect, because it, it naturally speaking, does bring a, a spiritual joy when we perform our penance as well. Well, and how did, I suppose, how did we get the Ember Days in the first place? Well, it's an interesting background. We know that the Romans, way back, were, at first they were very agricultural, so they had many nature gods, as, as you say, and a number of pagan religious um, nature festivals. So at the three main times of the year, they had what they called the Feast of Sowing, when they would go out in the fields and sow their seeds, plant their harvest. Then they had the harvest feast in June or July. That's when they would bring in their crops. Then in September, they would have the Feast of Wine. And at these three main times of the year, the Romans would have a prayer service to their their idols and their false gods. And they would offer sacrifices to obtain the favor of these gods on their, their crops. Um, in the, you notice how whenever the church is going to go into pagan lands and convert them, they try to use certain observances that the pagans had, but make them Christian, obviously um, avoiding all scandal or sense of um, approval of what they were doing, but change these things, different customs, and make them Christian, make them Catholic. And that's what the church did with all of these. So originally, there were only three sets of ember days. A fourth one was added later on just to make it coincide with the four changes of the, the seasons. But it was in the third century, and Rome was still pagan at that time. Then during the third century, the Christians began to observe these ember days. But 
whereas the pagans would feast and uh, make great joy, the Christians would fast. And it was probably in the fourth century is um, what I remember reading that uh, the fourth prayer period in March was then observed. Um, but the, the purpose for these ember days, though, changed over the years. It was very different because at first, like I said, they were considered to be more joyful. Of course, you did your penance, your fasting. But then later on, it became, developed more of a penitential spirit. Um, as Pope Leo the Great, he said that in his sermons on the Ember Days, he said that at those times we have a duty to ask God's blessing and to thank him for all of the food and the harvest that he's given us by a joyful fast before, before eating and making use of these, this food. Um, then later on, it became, there became more of a motive of penance, though. Um, you know, when you put it that way, Father, I'm, I'm thinking of St. Raphael with Tobias and, and his wife-to-be that, you know, they were married, and of course they had every right to enjoy the marital acts, but they went through their, I could, you could say, their own ember days prior, prior to that, and there's a, re, there's a reflection there that we can appreciate the harvest or appreciate the feast more if we reflect on what it's like to, to not have it. Um, and it, it's counterintuitive, you know, you think you have a harvest, this is when you're gonna have a party, bring everybody, you know, roll out the barrels. But, uh, you know, Christianity asks us to do something that is instinctive, not instinctive, we have to act against that. And I thought that was, uh, that's an interesting point you brought out. Yes, and it is a very important part of our spiritual life. Our life is Catholics. That, that gratitude for all that God's given. And that's why even in the Ember Days, they would turn the Ember Days into a sort of a chance to charitable, to give alms. God gives you money, but it's not just for yourself. Uh, God gives us food. It's not for ourselves. So the, the earlier Christians or those in the Middle Ages would use this time as a time to give alms, give food to the poor and the needy, um, and different things like that. And also to develop a sense of charity, you know, that sense of giving of food, they turned it to a more spiritual sense and prayed to the, uh, for the poor souls in purgatory, offered masses during the ember days. So you see that it does sort of develop that theme of giving and charity, whether it's giving food or giving alms of any sort. That's, really one of the purposes of the Ember Days, at least in the earlier years. Um, but now, now I think it's more a thing of, now the main reason for the Ember Days is praying for priests, praying for vocations, because the um, Ember Saturday was generally the day of ordination to the diaconate and to the priesthood. So now it's become more a time to pray and for your seminarians for more vocations, and God knows that we need them. So it's, it is truly a time of penance, but all for a good motive. 
I think it's it's interesting too that you know you when we think about the harvest, we think about how disconnected we are today. You know, a lot of a lot of children grow up thinking that meat comes from the supermarket, and they have no idea where things come from, and what an important link agriculture has to you know our secular lives, but also how that notion of harvest and change of seasons informs the liturgical year that we know when we have an ember day, we know there's probably a season change, not just a season change within the church, uh, within the church's uh, liturgical calendar, but there's probably a season change, you know, an actual like spring to summer, summer to fall, that sort of thing. And I think that's just a nice, nice, nice little reminder within the liturgical year that, that I, I, I love, I, I love that uh, reminder. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. We all we all need it, and so it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder of the fact that we need we need to do penance. You know, we forget that very often, and so the church's inner wisdom has instituted these four times during the year when we're forced to do it. And so it's a it, like you said, it's a very very good reminder. So, Father, you say it's taken on more of a, a, a role of praying for priests now. Uh, apart from that, are the, the different ember days different in their intentions, or can we generally look at each set of ember days throughout the year as a time of penance, prayer for priests, uh, and overall preparation for the, uh, another feast that's on the other side of the ember day? Yes, I, I think for the most part, it's generally the the same intention uh, generally speaking um but yeah mainly mainly it's to call down god's blessing upon that season upon our crops and also the priesthood you know uh, and i want i really do think it's a here and now and in, in our day uh, an important thing to pray for priests so I really want to stress that today, um, even more than, you know, thanking God for our crops, because we live in a time when there are very few true Catholic priests, and there are very few young men that are willing to give up everything in the world to, you know, to leave it all and to serve God at the altar and to serve the people by bringing them the grace of God. So I, I really want to stress that to all the people, the listeners today, to use these times as a time to really pray and do penance for your priests and for future priests. Without the priests, many of the graces that are otherwise given to the church and to the world are lost, and they're lost forever. So we really need to concentrate on that. Well, Father, I. I, I always keep in mind that while we, we can assume a traditional Catholic audience, there's quite a few people who listen to the Restoration Radio Network that are non-Catholic or who are currently at the Novus Ordo sect or, you know, have fallen away from Catholicism in general. And, and so when we say Ember Days, we might as well be talking about little green men. So <laughs> can we can you explain exactly how the Ember Days work? What days are there? Uh, what what days comprise the Ember Days, and then what is the church's uh, 
what is the church's practice on those days? Oh, sure. Yeah, the, the church is chosen for each of the ember weeks, three days on which to fast, and they're the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And the observance of these days from the penitential point of view is that we would um, fast, which of course means the one full meal per day. So we could eat um, one main meal and then two light meals, which together do not equal a full meal. And then, of course, abstaining from meat on those days, no meat on Fridays and meat once only at the main meal on Wednesday and Saturday. So these are days of fast and they coincide with the more or less with the change of season. It's not exactly on the change of season in many cases. Uh, it's mid-September for the uh, fall ember days. Then uh, probably about halfway through Advent, we have the ember days. Halfway into, through December, we have the uh, ember days of winter. And then again near the, the Feast of uh, Pentecost, right, which which changes from year to year. So these days are, are dedicated to that, just fasting. You try to do some extra prayers, um, calling out God's blessing on our crops and the like. So that's, that's essentially in a nutshell, that is the observance for the ember days. Um, and, and just as a reminder, Father, that, that, that's not optional, right? That's not a devotional practice. That, that's binding under at least pain of venial sin, uh, fasting and abstinence on those days. Oh, yes, uh, of course. I mean, it's actually a, binds under pain of, of mortal sin, right? The fast law okay. obliges anybody that's 21 to 59 inclusive. And the law of abstinence, which is with regard to the eating of meat, that obliges all Catholics from the age of seven up. And there there could be excusing causes, but for that, you should always ask a priest beforehand. It's better not to assume that you would be dispensed. You know, um, expectant mothers or nursing mothers, they would certainly be dispensed from the from the fast. But nonetheless, you know, heavy people that do heavy manual labor would be excused, but you should always uh, ask your priest beforehand. Don't just assume that you have a dispensation. <laughs> in, in, so. in, in the spirit of human nature, probably. Well, in, in the spirit of asking, asking a priest and in the spirit of the ember days to, to go inclination is, Father, uh, I'm sure you've read in the news lately, fasting is, is trendy. It's part of, you know, a, a detox or a juicing diet. You know, fasting is recommended as a, as a new health trend. So ignoring the fact, well, maybe not ignoring, acknowledging the fact that fasting unsurprisingly has good health properties. Rather than getting away from fasting, what should be our rule in terms of additional fasting? So let's say you know, you enjoy the fasting from Ember Days because you are trying to take joy in your penance, as you suggest. Do do we need to ask a priest, you know, to, let's say, randomly fast in a given week? Or is that more if we want to get into a kind of regimen where, you know, Father, I want to fast every Wednesday. 
And I suppose that probably ties into the larger question of should I get a spiritual director? And and we don't have to we don't have to answer that question today. We can maybe leave that for Father McKenna's show. But can you comment a bit on taking on fasting? Yes, I, I don't think it would hurt a lot of people nowadays. But uh, that's that's just speaking very generally. You know, we live in a culture where everything's at our fingertips, uh, fast food culture, uh, and there's really a lack of discipline in general in society. So fasting would do us a lot of good, but that's just speaking generally again. So I would, they should find uh, a spiritual director or a confessor that they feel comfortable with and only speak to him about matters like this or the penances that should be done, because fasting, extra fasting, is not for everybody. You know, obviously you must follow the rules of fasting that the church prescribes, but as to extra penances in that regard, you should ask a confessor or a spiritual director, and not just take it on yourself. There are many, many reasons for doing that. You know, the, your confessor might see that it is bad for you for one reason or another, whether it's health reasons or in, for whatever reason might do you more spiritual harm than good. So yes, absolutely, you should always get a spiritual director's advice on that. And the same with any other more rigid penances. I'm not speaking like giving up candy for a day or something like that. You may do those without permission. But the bigger more rigid penances, <laughs> I would say, you know, get someone's advice because no one is his own spiritual director. It just doesn't work that way. You know, so God, God chose men to direct other men in the spiritual order. And that he was very wise, of course, in doing that. So yes, uh, always check with your, your confessor or spiritual director. I was going to say, being your own, being your own spiritual director is sort of like going to confession to yourself. It's really not that hard. <laughs> well, that would certainly make the life of a priest easier if he could go to confession to himself, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I, you know, I picture if there's a, there's a moment where you're, you're on the other side kneeling, and then you, you say your spiritual, and then you run over to the other side as the priest. Uh, but that just, it's more, more comic, and it doesn't exactly work. So um, just just to review what what you had said, Father. So we've got four four sets of Ember Days during the year. If we start at the beginning of the liturgical year, we've got um, Ember Week between the third and fourth Sunday of Advent. Then where we're talking about now, why you picked it as something to talk about this month between the first and second Sunday of Lent. And then later mm-hmm. on, you mentioned Pentecost between Pentecost and Trinity Sunday. And then the the one that's the most ambiguous is the fourth one. Uh, which is after Holy Cross, um, Holy Cross Sunday. It's in September sometime. I couldn't, I couldn't quite get a definite date down, but I think it's in the second half of September. Yeah, so those are our four I, Ember days. Yes. Yeah. I my actually, I would have to check that date myself. <laughs> Again, I'm not good at remembering dates for those things. Well, that's what the calendar. Well, we don't have to, that, that, that's that's what an or, that's what an ordo is for, right? Father, you just absolutely. You, I, I, I was I was thinking about uh, for for those who don't know, an ordo is something that priests use in order to make sure they have the right ribbons in the right places for their office. 
which is the only thing that priests are actually obliged to say on a daily basis. Priests are not obliged to say mass. Mass, of course, they very happily and willingly do so. Um, and but it also tells them where to go uh, as far as the mass goes. But uh, an ordo uh, and a calendar are there to save people like Father McGuire and myself, who uh, who don't always. <laughs> remember things. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the Liturgical Year, Episode 2 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and I'm with Father McGuire, Father Charles McGuire, and we're talking about Ember Days. And Father, is there anything else that you'd like to say about the Ember? I think uh, your general message has been, you know, welcome them, you know, look forward to them, use them as an opportunity. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we move on to our next subject? Um. Yeah, just a little, perhaps some more ideas of, of a few minor ideas of what can be done on those days besides fasting. Uh, because I came across something that I had never known before, I'd never heard it, that there was an ancient legend that during the Ember days, some of the poor souls would be allowed to, to leave purgatory for a few moments and appear to the relatives, friends who prayed for them. And to thank, they would thank these people, their benefactors, and ask them to continue their prayers. And so the, these people would then in turn have more masses, more prayers offered for the poor souls. And I thought that was a really beautiful thought. And so around Ember Days, also think of the, the poor souls in purgatory. Have more masses offered, especially for the, the forgotten souls. Because remember, nowadays, the, the faith is so scarce. People don't believe in purgatory, so why should they pray for them? So many souls are left there with no one praying for them. And so we have to try to remember all of these, these souls. So Ember Days, the good time to do that. But I would say that's the uh, last last real thought that I had on that. Um, I suppose the only, uh, the only thought I would add is a bit polemical, and I would say it was no surprise that the, the uh, Novus Ordo sect dumped these observances at the earliest possible date. Um, it was as early as 1969 that uh, the, the usual phrasing, which is the, the sort of weasel phrasing, local uh, bishops' conferences are left to do, uh, observe these days in whatever way they want, which is, of course, the Novus Ordo way of saying, yeah, we can just dump this. Uh, because yeah. uh, good, luck, good luck finding a bishop who wants to observe the Ember Days when it's not the observed by <laughs> the universal church. Human nature just tends to move away from penance. And, uh, of course, the Novus Ordo sect, believing that everybody goes to heaven when you die. That's why you have mass in white, not in black. Of course, needs to get rid of penance, too, because, you know, that's that's just frowny face Catholicism, I suppose, is what uh, Bergoglio would say, you know, with his uh, catchy sayings. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the Novus Ordo is, the whole Vatican II religion is very naturalistic. And yes, according to them, uh, as long as you're naturally virtuous, you're fine. Well, if natural virtue gets you there, why do penance? Well, you don't have a need for penance. So, therefore, let's ditch the ember days. Let's make fast uh, fasting optional in Lent and all of those sorts of things. 
There's no, there's no right. need head, one head, to head down to your local, head down to your local buffet. There's no shortage. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so yeah, the, uh, it's sad. It's sad to see what Vatican II has done with regard to all of that. And there's no need for penance. You know, there's no need, no need for any of that sort of thing in the no Sordo. Because, like you said, Stephen, we're, we're all going to heaven. <laughs> I know, it's so, so, much, so much easier. I tell people all the time, I said, listen, if I, if I wanted it easy, I would definitely be the, no, the Novus Ordo. I, I, you know, I, I'd be Santo, Santo Subito. You know, it's not, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a completely different story in that, in that religion, in that false religion. So uh, moving on, Father, one of the things that we wanted to do this year in, within the liturgical year is talk about feasts, of course, that, that we can pick. But also we wanted to talk about everything relating to the liturgy. I, I got a couple emails saying how fascinated they were with your, your relating to us, the wick, the flame, the, the wax within the candle, and, and the symbols there for, for our Lord. And, that, and that's kind of what we hope to fit in the nooks and crannies, not just talking about feasts, but talking about everything that surrounds the liturgy itself. And today, uh, I want to take us back into the sacristy and talk about um, getting ready for Mass. And I talked uh, about this a little bit uh, in last week's show uh, with Father McKenna on Pastoralia, uh, talking about how he you know, can get ready for Mass and, and what his ritual is. So before I get to vesting, can you tell us a little bit about and again, this is with the acknowledgement that sometimes you have to be your own driver. Sometimes you're hearing confessions, uh, you know, before mass, and and then on your way from the from the confessional to the sacristy, you know, some some uh, someone stops you, and they have to tell you something very urgent, which isn't urgent at all. Uh, and then you know something's broken, and then someone tells you something's broken, and you're just trying to get mass started. So let's assume that never happens, right? Because it does. But let's assume that never happens and you're able to simply prepare for Mass as you would like. What are some of the things that you do to to get ready to celebrate Mass? And then we'll talk about vestition. Well, it's hard to imagine going to the sacristy without any of that stuff happening. <laughs> so I really have to think. No, the, the ideal, obviously, is what many of the the spiritual authors who write books for the priests, what they recommend is meditation. I don't remember if we said this in our last show, but I certainly had it written out because I thought it was a nice one. But one priest said that he makes his meditation in order that he may say that morning's Mass well, and then he says his Mass so that he can do the next morning's meditation well. Um, so the ideal thing is to at least get in a half hour's meditation or so and a few extra uh, little prayers, your morning prayers. But the church recommends also in this, in our day, if you have an early morning mass or something, it's rather difficult to do, but to get matins and logs in, you know, part of the breviary. But, um, I always like to try to get at least that half hour's meditation in in the morning, get your thoughts recollected, and get over to church early enough that you're not rushing to finish last-minute things. You have time to keep your mind focused and 
on what you're about to do in just a few few moments. You know, so that's the important part is uh, just keeping recollected by those prayers. When I appreciate, Father, you're you're describing sort of a fantasy scenario, right? Because that that never really happens. But uh, but if, if you had it your way, um, some of the office, some time for your morning meditation, and then let that roll into your mass. So we know uh, if you if you have Father McGuire visiting, you know, give him some space so he could uh, he can um, you know get some I- ideal ideal uh, time with our Lord in. So we're assuming you've gone, you've, you've done all that, Father, you've had your, you've said some of your bravery, and uh, you've had your morning meditation, and I'm a, an altar boy uh, waiting for you in the sacristy, and you, you come back, and uh, we're ready to vest. And I suppose I should say a word here about vesting um, for our young altar boy. I'm, I'm sort of retired altar server. I, I've made rooms for the for the young the young whippersnappers. So I, I'm still available for private private masses and, and and to be called on here and there. But uh, I leave it to the young people to to serve most of the Sunday masses. So just as a note to you young whippersnappers, um, if there is no one assisting the priest for vesting, that you are going to assist the priest for vesting. The priest is not supposed to be left to vest by himself. That's your duty. So uh, if you've been doing that, if you've been happily sitting back watching Father Vest, Father's probably not going to turn around and tell you, hey, moron, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> but uh, I- I'm, I'm happy to tell you, hey, uh, you need to help Father. So, Father, before you, you start vesting, actually, you, you, have a, you have a prayer you say. And again, for those who don't know this, this is a great opportunity for you to kind of see back into the sacristy and see what Father does in preparation. So before Father even vests, he, he, he washes his hands, and the church has a prayer for him to say while washing his hands. He says, Da Domine Virtutum Manibus Mei Sadebster Gundam, Omnem Maculam Utsine Pollutione Mentis et Corporis Valium TB Servire, which means, give virtue, O Lord, unto my hands, that every stain may be wiped away that I may be enabled to serve thee without defilement of mind or body. And obviously there's a practical reason for, for washing the hands, Father. I mean, you, you're out there in the world and, you know, your hands may maybe even slightly, you know, not clean. But uh, is there also a, a liturgical a match to the practical reason? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things to always remember about the liturgy is that there's nothing that is done that is merely an external gesture. Everything symbolizes something that that takes place or is meant to take place internally or spiritually. So the washing of the hands, remember, if you are familiar with Scripture, first of all, that the Jewish priest, the high priest, really focused a lot on that purification, washing hands. And that was one of the things that some of the Jews were scandalized, that our Lord's apostles did not wash their hands before they sat down to to meal. And that purification symbolizes the internal purification, that you're not just washing your hands and getting them clean, but you want your soul to be free of sin. You want it to be pure. Your mind also to be pure and washed away of all worldly things, all sensual things. And so that's really 
the purpose behind it, not just an external washing, but an internal, and to build up that contrition and sorrow for sin. So after your hands are washed, then uh, your first uh, vestment that is put on it is the amis. And the prayer that is said is, Impone Domini Capiti Meo Gallium Salutis, Ad Expugandos Diabolicos In Cursus. Place, O Lord, the helmet of salvation upon my head, that I may overcome the assaults of the devil. Um, and people may be surprised to find out that you are wearing a helmet uh, because they probably haven't seen you with that father. So explain this, this vestment a little bit. Well, it is uh, it's a rectangular piece of linen cross either in the center or up towards the, the middle of the top, if you will. Um, and when the subdeacon is first given the amos, it is actually put on his head as a sort of a hood. And so that's why they talk about the helmet of salvation. The priest obviously would, when he puts the amos on, he first lifts it over the top of his head, rests it on top of his head, and then lowers it to his, uh, around his neck and tucks it in his collar. And there are, actually, the Amish is a really interesting thing. It has a lot of symbolism and um, things about it, things that you can apply to your, uh, the priest can apply to his spiritual life, and obviously the people too. They can make it a little meditation for themselves. But also, it has some connection with the the passion of our Lord. So I want to try to hit both of those things for each vestment, the connection with our Lord's passion, and then what how we can apply it to the spiritual life. The first of all, the Amos refers to in the Passion when our Lord was had his eyes covered and they began, he was blindfolded and they began to strike him and say, prophecy, who was it that struck you? And they mocked him. Well, that's what the Amos should make the priest think about as he's putting it on. But then with regard to the moral symbolism, which is the virtues or something that connects with the spiritual life, the helmet of salvation referred to in that prayer when the priest, that the priest says, refers to hope, the virtue of hope, that he's asking our Lord to give him that virtue of hope. And the assaults of Satan are, in general, any attack of the devil, the temptations that he sends your way. But especially here and now, you're going, the priest is going to the mass. The devil is going to try his best to take away as many of the fruits of the mass as he can. And so when the priest is putting that on, he's asking for hope, for help as well, to overcome all of the attacks of the devil during the course of the Mass and for his whole life. Um, But there's another interesting part here that the Amos is tucked in around the neck of the priest. The, The practical purpose for the Amos at one time was to... To cover the neck and to keep um, to keep the celebrant's voice clear, so that he could sing the divine praises. So there's the symbolism here of self-control over speech, 
St. James said, you know, he who does not commit sins of the tongue is a perfect man. And that's true. Think of all the sins of the tongue that we commit in a single day. Gossip and detraction, calumny, complaining, whatever it is. So it's, um, it's a reminder to the priest that he has to control his tongue, but you can't control your tongue unless you've controlled your heart first. Perhaps that's why the amos is first touched to the head, to control the, the mind as well, because the scripture tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So you're not going to speak about things unless you're thinking about them first. So it, the amos reminds the priest and the people that they should always keep themselves in check, keep their not only their mind, but their speech in particular. So that's, that's what I have to say about the, the amos. The next thing that you put on is the alb. The alba me domine et munda cormeum ut in sanguine ani diabatus gaudis perfuar sempiternis. Cleanse me, O Lord, and purify my heart, that being made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may have the fruition of everlasting joys. This is a for those of us who aren't priests, Father, I, I think of an alb, and I, I think somewhat of a baptismal robe. You know, obviously, I, I was probably a little too young to remember when my, my godfather was, was there the last time I was clothed in white for a church ceremony. But um, I'm sure there must be some, some link to baptism here for the priest, but there, there's obviously other symbolism at play. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so, yes, the, the alb does signify that innocence and purity of soul that uh, we're reminded of in baptism, the same thing here, that you, we must keep our souls white as snow and pure before before God and his, his heavenly angels. But the scriptures, they speak frequently about the white robe, and they keep bringing this up throughout scripture. In the apocalypse, for example, it says, He that shall overcome shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Um, and there are different beautiful quotations about that, the white garments or the white robe. And it's a symbol of purity and that those who fight in this life to keep their souls pure will one day be rewarded. But one of the interesting things that we can apply to our life here is that linen is not naturally a very bright white. It is whitened more and more by washing it and then bleaching it, putting it out in the rain and the, the, the sun. At least that's how they did it in the olden days. I don't know if there's a different method now. But they make the analogy that the soul, in order to become more and more white, has to be watered with the dew of God's grace. And, and the rays of his grace have to, to shine upon it as well. So... There's a beautiful symbolism with the, the alb. But the alb also, with regard to the passion, makes us think of how our Lord was clothed in white garments and sent away as a fool by, uh, by Herod. And so that, that makes us think more of that scene in our Lord's passion. That's, in a nutshell, what the, the symbolism of the alb really is. 
at this point, the the altar server will see that there is the cincture there ready ready to put on, and he might reach it out as you're straightening out your alb. And then a priest will put both of his hands back behind his back, palms out for the altar boy to place the the cincture in his hands because there's a specific way that it gets put on. The prayer reads, Prechinga me domine, chingulo puritatis, that extingue in lumbis meis rumorem libidinis, ut maniat in me virtus continentiae et castitatis. Gird me, O Lord, with the girdle of purity, and extinguish in my loins the desire of lust, so that the virtue of continence and chastity may ever abide in me. And I think this is one of those prayers where the the visual link is so clear with the prayer, not to say that the other, that that's not true with, with the other vestments, but there's such a, a visual image here. There's such a tie with the prayer and the vestment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that's very clear in the prayer, what the symbolism of uh, is of the cincture. So it's first and foremost is, the virtue of holy purity and chastity. The Book of Wisdom said, you know, how beautiful is the chaste generation with glory. And we notice that all through Scripture, who are our Lord's closest disciples and most loyal friends, but the most pure and chaste, St. John, uh, the evangelist, Our Lady, uh, they were the ones that were most pure. They got the, they received the most from our Lord. And so this this vestment should remind us of the importance of holy purity in our life. And of course, we know how badly this virtue is needed in our society. So we should always, before Mass, I'd even recommend for people to go over the vestments um, and say, a, say those prayers as a part of your Mass preparation and pray it for the whole world. Because by saying this prayer, you're praying for that the virtue of holy purity might extend all through the world. So that's that's the first virtue that's symbolized by it. But there's another one, actually. It is also quite interesting that warriors and soldiers in the Old Testament, you always read about them girding their loins before they go out to battle. Well, all that meant was essentially they would take a, a cinch or a belt tight around their waist because their clothes were so baggy and loose. So they would hitch them up a little bit so that they could move more freely and and fight well in the battle. So this cincture also symbolizes that, that you're girding yourself for, for the spiritual battle in your spiritual life, to fight the good fight and persevere to the end. That's another symbolism of the cincture. But also the cincture recommends or uh, symbolizes in our Lord's passion the cords that were used to bind our Lord's hand as he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane and when he was bound at the pillar for his scourging. So there's beautiful symbolism there as well. Very much so. Well, we're getting closer to having you fully vested, Father. The next thing that we are going to to put on you is the, the manifold. Mary mm-hmm. domine portare manipulum fletus et doloris, ut cum exultatione recipiam mercedem laboris. 
May I be worthy, O Lord, so to bear the maniple of tears and sorrow that with joy I may receive the reward of my labor. Uh, along with this, Father, you might be able to solve a bit of trivia, which I'm sure many Catholics know, but simply just forget to ask. Why does Father take off the maniple when he gives a sermon, or why does the bishop wait until the prayers at the foot to put on his maniple? So a little bit of trivia mixed in with telling us about the maniple. Hmm. Well, maybe someone can answer that for me. <laughs> no, I, because the the sermon is not strictly speaking a part of the uh, liturgical ceremony, so it comes off then. Uh, but truthfully, I never even thought to question or or figure out why the bishop wouldn't wear it for the beginning, you know, until later on in the, after the prayers at the foot of the altar. So that's maybe something I can look up for the next time we show do the show. Well, and thankfully you, you have a resource nearby who you can ask. <laughs> yeah. It won't be hard for me to figure it out. <laughs> the, the research won't take too long. Uh, no. <laughs> so, but, um, but the, the maniple comes from the Latin manipulus in, in the gospels. There's made mention of this that they that sow in tears shall reap in joy, right? So um, the, the maniple symbolizes the uh, fruit of our good works. You know, there's mention, I don't know, did you read the prayer already? I did, I did. Okay, okay. So the, um, it mentions that the maniple of weeping and sorrow so it, it symbolizes all of the, the effort that we have to put into the spiritual life, how much suffering it does cause, because again, we're, we're human. We have weak, weak and human nature ever since the fall, and so it's difficult for us. But So the maniple symbolizes that. Because remember, in the olden days, the maniple was a vestment that was used to wipe off, as the priest was saying, mass, wipe off the, the sweat, and in some cases, tears off of the, the priest's face during the course of Mass. But then the maniple also symbolizes the fruit of our good works. Because again, that scripture quote, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. So it, it's a reminder of our eternal reward. Um, and with regard to our Lord's passion, it symbolizes, the maniple symbolizes the... Um, how our Lord was bound as if he were a criminal. And the way that that's symbolized is that the priest wears the maniple on his, his left arm. You'll notice the thing, vestment dangling down from his left arm uh, towards his elbow during mass. That's the maniple. And uh, that's why it symbolizes um, how our Lord was, had his hands bound as if he were a criminal being led off to, to his punishment. The next vestment that's put on is the stole. Reda mihi domine, dolami mortalitatis, quam perdidi in prevericatione primi parentis, et quam bis indignus accedo ad tum sacrum mysterium, meri artamen gaudium sempiternum. Restore to me, O Lord, the stole of immortality, which I lost by the transgression of the first parent. And although unworthy, as I draw near to thy sacred mystery, may I be found worthy of everlasting joy. 
Yeah, so this again has a very, very beautiful prayer and also a great symbolism uh, with regard to the passion. You'll notice that if you've ever seen the bishop and priest uh, vest, they wear their stole differently. Or if they preach, if they take their, their chasuble off for the sermon, you'll notice that the bishop wears it hanging straight down on both sides. Um, and that's to distinguish him from a mere, mere priest. And also because he already, the bishop already has the pectoral cross hanging around, uh, hanging around his neck. Whereas the priest crosses uh, the, the stole over his chest. And that is a, the stole is a symbol of the heavy burden of the cross that our Lord bore um, in his passion. But also, again, it says, when the bishop gives a newly ordained deacon the stole, he says, Receive this shining white stole from the hand of God. Fulfill your ministry, for God is powerful to increase his grace in you. And then he again says, when he's crossing the stole over the, the deacon's uh, chest, he says, take upon you the yoke of the Lord, for his yoke is sweet and his burden light. So he's, and the deacon then asks our Lord to give him the robe of immortality, which he has lost by by the sin of Adam and by our own sins. So we we ask for the a return, a regaining of that robe of immortality. And that's what the uh, stole symbolizes. But historically, the stole was not something that was quite so long or decorative. It was actually something like the napkin that a waiter would wear as in a fancier restaurant. He'd Bring it over his his shoulder, and that's what it was originally too. Um, and it was used to purify the chalice after the communion of the priest, and the chalice needs to be wiped out. So it's like a little napkin that the deacon would put on his shoulder. But then when they in- introduced the purificator, which is now used to clean out the chalice, uh, then the stole became more decorative and uh, a sort of symbol of office that a, only a deacon or a priest or bishop could wear the stole. So a little history trivia there for you. Excellent. Excellent. Um, the, the next prayers are uh, varied insofar it depends on what state of uh, major orders you're in. So if you're a subdeacon, you'll receive the tunical. If you are a deacon, the dalmatic. And if you're a priest, the chasuble, you, Father, you've made it past those other two levels. Um, and, and both of those prayers uh, have the same spirit as the prayer for the chasuble, because it's speaking about the garment. Domini creed existi, yugum meum suave est, et onus meum leve, fac uti stud portare sig valiam, quod consequar tuum gratiam. O Lord, who has said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, make me so able to bear it that I may obtain my favor Amen. It's the only prayer that has an amen attached to it. So you are at that point done. Besting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the chasuble is, uh, you might say, the main priestly vestment, uh, which symbolizes, of course, the, the robe of mockery, that purple robe that our Lord received in, in his 
passion, but it also symbolizes um, symbolizes you might say a love of love of God, and we ask we ask our Lord, or we should think of this to ask our Lord for an increase of charity to grow in that every single day of our life, um, and so that's that's sort of what we ask for. And we're reminded, too, of how our Lord's yoke truly is sweet and his burden light. If only we have that charity, love of God. Love makes, makes it easy for us to do anything. Uh, you think of the love of a mother or a child. She'll do anything to protect and to nurture that child. And so if we love our Lord and have that charity symbolized by the chasuble, then his yoke does truly become sweet and his burden light. And so that's kind of the symbolism for the, the main priestly vestment, which is a chasuble. And just before you head out the sacristy, Father, and the altar boy rings the bell, you're going to put on your beretta. What is the symbolism behind the beretta? And I suppose that ties into why sometimes, I'm sure there's some internet videos floating around of you uh, with the beretta on giving sermons. So how does that tie, how does the symbolism behind the Beretta tie into wearing it at that part, um, or I would say in that function, because the sermon is not part of the Mass? Yeah, the, the, the Beretta is worn as a sign of authority. So the, the priest wears it when he is acting in a position of authority. So for instance, when he's... A lot of people don't know this, but when the priest is hearing confessions, for example, he may wear the beretta because he's in a position of authority. He is the judge in the, you might call it the, the courtroom, the heavenly courtroom, the confessional. He's the judge. He may wear the beretta if he chooses. And the same when he preaches at the pulpit, he is supposed to, to wear the, the beretta at that point as a sign of his authority. He is preaching in the name of Christ to all the people. And so that is a symbol of his authority. And of course, out of respect, as he's offering mass, sign of humility, adoration, he removes his beretta. He would not wear it at that point. But that's that's why you often see him wearing the beretta in sermons and, and certain things like that. Or, or even, as a side note, as he's doing the exorcisms in baptism, it's to show his authority over the demons. He's commanding the, the demons to depart, and that's a sign of his authority. So only for the exorcisms in a baptism does he wear the beretta. Well... Now, those of us who, who aren't in the sacristy for any number of reasons got a little sneak preview of, not a preview, but uh, a real look back into um, uh, what goes on um, for Father as, as he's prepping for Mass and, and the prayers that he has to say. For, for those of you who just finished listening to that and are, are just joining us, it's a reminder that you're listening to the Liturgical Year, Episode 2 on the Restoration Radio Network. Stephen Heiner with Father McGuire, who has just walked us through the, vesti- the vestition prayers for a priest as he gets ready for Mass. 
We want to remind you that the liturgical year is a product, uh, a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved. Any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. But permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. For the last part of our show today, Father, you are going to get us ready for that season around the corner, which is Lent, and we're going to talk a little bit about Ash Wednesday, uh, which 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 is not just the day after Mardi Gras, uh, but is its but is its own day in its own right. And what would you like to to talk to us about regarding this feast? Oh, there's there's really so much to say on this. Um, just a brief overview. I'd like to speak about the different ceremonies that, that take place in the blessing of ashes and even going to the mass and some of the different texts and some thoughts that I'd like to share with the, the laity, the, the lessons that our Lord gives us that we can, if we just open our ears and open our hearts, then our Lord tells us right there in the liturgy, how we should spend our, our Lenten season, how we should fast, how to do our penances, what motives we should have. And then I'd like to also go into the meaning of the ashes. Why do we, why are we marked with ashes at the beginning of Lent? What is their symbolism and the like? So I think I'd like to start though with First, the, the history of this. There's a very interesting history about Ash Wednesday in general, that the ceremonies of Ash Wednesday are probably were not originally meant for all of the faithful. I mean, getting the ashes and all of that. But only those Catholics who committed public sins, very serious or scandalous sins to which uh, public penance was attached. So these public penitents would be gathered into a church where all of the faithful were also present. The priest present would hear the accusation of their crimes. The penitents would be clothed in sackcloth. They would be, ashes would be sprinkled on their heads. And then all of the clergy and faithful present in that church would prostrate on the ground and sing the seven penitential psalms. Then a procession would be formed in which the penitents would walk barefoot. Then as they would then return to the church, and the bishop here performed a very beautifully symbolic ceremony, but obviously a very humiliating one for the penitents as if, you know, what, what went on before was not humiliating enough. But um, tell them in front of all the faithful, Behold, we drive you from the doors of the church because of your sins and crimes, as Adam, the first man, was driven out of paradise because of his transgression. Then some responsories were, were sung, and the, the penitents were made to leave the church, and the doors were shut, and the penitents could not enter the church again until Holy Thursday. For the, the last Thursday of Lent. And so the, the symbolism of that, again, going back to what that bishop said, is how Adam was expelled from out of the doors, the gates of, of paradise. And so these public penitents were expelled from the doors of the church. 
So there's beautiful symbolism. And it wasn't until the 11th century that public penance was no longer observed in this same way. And so all the faithful began receiving the ashes as a sign of humility. Um, so that's a basic overview of the history of those those ceremonies on Ash Wednesday. Um, I think what's been interesting about about what you that mark obviously uh, that the penances that were given out for sins back in the early Christian days I, I definitely don't think we could handle it as moderns you know uh, standing outside the church for a year and not being allowed to go to mass I mean those those are that was, you could say those were real penances back then, but uh, you know, you sort of, you know, whenever, whenever you complain about a pre- penance, just remember, you know. So, Father's asking you to say one or two rosaries. Uh, think about standing outside the church for a year. You know that that that's uh, that's what real penance is like. But uh, you know, Father, it's funny. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy in past years is being out in public uh, on Ash Wednesday how many people have ashes on and, and there's normally being Catholic is you don't wear a t-shirt that says, Hey, I'm Catholic, you know, how are you? <laughs> but to, that's, that's one of the days of the year where you can't hide it. And, and obviously we have a little bit of crossover here with the Novus Ordo sex because uh, the Novus Ordo still observes this, you know, it's just a, they, they say some ludicrous, oh, I, they, they certainly don't say the traditional remember man that you are dust. They say something like, you know, do good, avoid evil, you know, read comics. I, I don't know what exactly they say, but you, if you go around, you, you'll you see um, those marks. And it, it's it's a day when you you have some insight into people, you know, strangers on the street, you'll see they've got some ashes on their forehead. And it's just a, a chance for us to recollect that, you know, we're a larger community as Catholics. Yeah, it's... Uh... It is very interesting that way, and um, like you said, it does show does show you know your faith for for the most part, and you can't hide it. So it's it is a beautiful thing to see that. Mm-hmm. So and we should keep them. We should keep them on the whole day. Don't go home and you're embarrassed and wash it off. <laughs> keep them is on there, the whole is there, day. Is there a pious is there a pious way to re- remove those, Father? Is there a you know, should we, uh, um, I, I'm thinking in terms of a burn bag and, um, and the sacristy, but, but what is, a is there a particular way we should take care to remove these at the end of the day? Or if we know we're going to work afterwards and, and we might wipe our brow cause we're doing physical labor and we don't want to do that with the ashes. Is there a, a good, a good way? Or is it just something simple as you say, just washing it off? It's just as simple as, as washing it off. I've never found in any of the pastoral book that I've uh, studied from that you have to do something else. So, no, it's as simple as wiping it off uh, later in the day, and that's it. So, uh, so it's, it's very simple. <laughs> okay. But um, I'd like to go on to the, for Ash Wednesday, though, the actual blessing of these ashes, kind of go through and what's being done and the symbolism behind the prayers, what we're asking for, and and such. So the antiphon for that day 
the the priest starts out and it's an antiphon in which the priest is begging for mercy for for himself and for all of the faithful. Then the priest goes into reciting the four prayers of blessing over the ashes. And each prayer mentions the purpose of the blessed ashes. I won't read each prayer, but just give you an idea of what each prayer um prayer what it's praying for, what it's mentioning. In the first prayer, we the priest says, Grant that whoever shall be touched by these ashes for the remission of their sins may receive health of body and protection of soul. So that's one of the effects of the pious use of these ashes, the health of body and protection of soul. The second prayer mentions that we wear them as a sign of humility because there's a reference to dust and ashes there, and also to obtain pardon of sins. Remember that the devout use of any sacramental um, brings about the forgiveness of venial sins. Um, The third prayer, we ask our Lord to grant us the spirit of compunction, sorrow for sins. And the fourth prayer talks about the Ninevites, and how they were spared because of their, their penance. Uh, they covered themselves with, with ashes. And so we ask our Lord to help us to imitate them and by means of our penance to obtain pardon, just like the Ninevites. So in a brief explanation of those prayers, that is what they mean, what we're praying for. And those are some of the effects of the pious use of this sacramental. Uh, then the, the people all come up and are marked with the ashes in the form of a cross on their, their forehead. And the priest says in Latin, Memento homo quiopulis est in pulverem reverteris, which means remember man that thou art dust and unto dust thou shalt return. Some of the dispositions we should have, though, when we receive these ashes is first, Accept willfully your sentence of death. You're nothing but dust and ashes. And we know that we're all going to, to die. And it's a scary thought, but we should willfully accept it as a, as a just punishment for our sins. So that's one disposition. The second one is to humble ourselves, because why should a potential pile of ashes ever be proud? Why should he ever exalt himself and think he's better than everyone or become so prideful that he will not submit to the law of God and the law of his church? When essentially, that's all we are, pile of ashes. That is what we will become one day, and that is what Ash Wednesday reminds us of, that we are nothing but ashes, and our days will go, and our days will go, there will be a time when we'll come to our last day. In the, in the light of eternity, the life of one man is so short. And again, I believe it's sacred scripture compares the life of, of man to ashes. If you blow a pile of ashes, it just spreads everywhere and it's gone. And the same with the life of man. It is so short compared to eternity. And yet we often forget that. And we live for the moment instead of for eternity when heaven and hell do not pass away. So those are some of the things that we, we should think of 
as we go up to receive our blessed ashes. But you'll notice, and this is something that I uh, thought that I've always liked about the, the church and how God works in general, that he requires that we be humble. That is that we are convinced that of ourselves we're nothing and we can do nothing for salvation. Humility without confidence. That is confidence in God. It just, in a sense, if you're only looking at it from a negative point of view, it just keeps you low. Um, But true humility raises you up to confidence. You distrust yourself, but you have complete confidence in the grace of God. And so the liturgy of Ash Wednesday does that. It humbles us, but then lifts us up. making It makes us think of our sins, our nothingness, our suffering, but then reminds us of the mercy of God, who came to call not the just, but sinners to repentance. And so you see that all throughout the not only Ash Wednesday, but all of Lent, how the church lifts you up from from humility to confidence. And then after the distribution of ashes, there's one more prayer that the priest says on returning to the altar. And he prays for all the faithful to remain courageous and generous in the, the Lenten combat against self and against sin and against demons. So that that's a general overview of the ceremony of the blessing of ashes. If you don't mind, I'd like to move on to the, the some of the mass texts and kind of give people some thoughts there as well. So starting with the the introit of the mass of Ash Wednesday, uh, again it it all goes back to that humility and then the church lifting us up to confidence. And the the prayer of the introit says, "Thou, O Lord." hast mercy on all, and hatest none of those things which thou hast created. Thou overlookest the sins of men to draw them to repentance, and thou pardonest them. So you see it reminds us of the mercy of God. He does not hate any of those things that he has created. He overlooks the sins of men to draw them to repentance. That's a thought. You think of all the sins in the world, all the sins that you and I have committed, and how patient God is. He just waits for us. Father of the prodigal son, he just waits for us and looks for us to come back. Because why? He came not to call the just, but sinners to repentance. Then we turn to the um, epistle. I'm looking actually for my missile here to read part of that one. Essentially, it gives some of the meanings or the, the motives why we should be fasting. And then we, we go to the gospel and our Lord tells us how to fast. So you, you can see that the church in her wisdom gave us these prayers and these liturgical texts to show us just how we should uh, go about our Lenten practices. So our Lord, first of all, he says, do not be sad as you fast. (laughs) So we go back to the beginning of the show. Don't be sad. Lent is not a sad time. It's a time of penance, yes. And it's a time that you should avoid, you know, a lot of big parties and things like that. At the same time, it's not as sad and 
depressing time. God gives us an opportunity to lessen our debt of sin. And that's a joyful thought, actually, when if we look at it more from the positive angle than the negative. God's giving us a grace and a chance. Uh, he then says, don't seek the praise of men, but rather seek to please God. So he brings to mind all of the, uh, the hypocrites in the old, the, old, uh, the old law under the old religion, how some of the chief priests, they sought to be recognized by all. You know, as if a uh, sad face in, in a emaciated frame <laughs> spoke about penance and, and all of that. But our Lord says, don't be sad and don't seek the praise of men. But then he says, join alms deed with fasting. He says, lay up treasures in heaven. And so it, it's a, Lent is a time of also not just fasting, but of almsgiving. So whether that's giving money to someone, whether it's doing some of the other spiritual or corporal works of mercy uh, throughout Lent, that's all a sort of almsgiving. So we should really meditate on the, the epistle and gospel of Ash Wednesday, and it gives us all the thoughts we need, uh, all the lessons we need to learn about how to... Then lastly, last part about the liturgical prayers of this, this day is the preface that we read almost every day in Lent. It's a small meditation, and I urge people to read it, even outside of Mass, and read it slowly, prayerfully, and think about it, because it tells us the benefits of fasting. Fasting extinguishes vice, it says. It elevates our understanding, and it gives virtue and its rewards. It does all of those things. If you notice, when you're full... When you have a full belly, you're not going to study very well. You're not going to work very well. Your mind is brought lower and out of a full belly receives a lot of buffoonery. Um, you think of people that are, are drunk. They, they act in a very undignified way, but fasting restores all of that. It elevates our understanding, our minds. It becomes easier to think of God and the things of God. It helps to, to take away our sins and the debt which we have contracted because of them. And it helps us to focus more on virtue and all of the rewards of virtue. So those are some little meditations that I urge people to think about during uh, during these next few months, especially in their preparation for Lent. I really enjoy the the communion and post-communion from this Mass as well, Father. Um, so, you know, the communions are always short and sweet, right? But I think it says so much for the kickoff of this season. Um, he, uh, the, 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 the text is, Qui meditabitur in lege domino dia ac nocte, dabit fructum sum in tempore suo. He that shall meditate day and night on the law of the Lord shall bring forth his fruit in due season. Again, talking about what you were saying, the didactic sense of the script, the, the text for, for this mass that you think about, you've got the next 40 days, meditate day and night. And tying back to our original topic to start our show today, the ember days and, and seasons and, 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 and harvest that 
you know, if you do this, if you, if you spend this Lent right, there will be fruit waiting for you. There's a, um, I think of a, a quote from, from uh, Marine Corps boot camp, which is, uh, I never promised you a rose garden, right? So uh, there's, there's, a, there's a hint of that here. Of course, there's a rose garden at the end of this season, potentially, or at least a garden uh, that, that will bring us back to this penitential spirit. But, you know, if, if, it's, almost a, it's almost a sense that it, it, if you do Lent right, it, there's going to be some great things for you on the other side of this. I feel that that's what this communion is, is uh, promising in its own way. Oh, absolutely. I know it's, uh, Lent is a time of, of that reform. And I think that's a good, actually a very good text for people to think about. Um, that's a, a very beautiful communion verse. So we should, and remember that you don't do fasting for the sake of fasting. You do, you fast in order to serve God better. You know, and a fast isn't just a fast from food. It's a fast from all sin. If you are not sinning, then you're observing the law of God. And that is our primary goal in this life is to, to serve God. And that communion verse reminds us of that. And if, if you want peace, then like you said, happiness or a rose garden, then you have to go through the suffering. It's like there's, there's no Easter without Lent. There's no paradise without without penance there's no virtue without penance so we we have to remind ourselves of that and look at the big picture not the here and now which is what our society wants us to do is look at the here and now um but look at the big picture why we're doing this why we're inflicting suffering on ourselves eternal reward Before we, we get into the, the last, I would say, mini topic of, of the day, Father, I wanted to find out if there was anything else you'd like to say about Ash Wednesday. No, I think that's about all for now. Our next show, we're obviously going to be right on the, the doorstep of, of Lent. Um, in fact, I should just take a, a quick look ahead at the calendar. Our, our next show will be... Um, We'll be into we'll be into Lent. So, uh, since we won't have to, a chance to do another show before that time, I thought we could just touch a little bit on penances during Lent. And I've often reflected that when you're young, you know, Lent means I'm going to give up chocolate or candy or or something else juvenile. But that as you get older, at some point, and it's different for everybody, you make that crossover from Lent is about giving up candy uh, to, to Lent is about something else. And, and I've used them um, in the past. Lent has been there for me for some pretty transformational things. Uh, before our family was traditional Catholic, um, I, I was 16 and I used Lent to stop watching TV. <laughs> I figured mm-hmm. if I could go all of Lent without watching TV, it was going to be a break. So um it's it's a very powerful practical thing, you know, to get rid of a bad habit. So I I hope that you might relate to us some, some of some successful Lenten practices, either you've gone through or you've had faithful relate to you that have really worked for them. And, And what should animate this spirit? Obviously if we get past the, 
I'm giving up candy for Lent phase. What should be next? And, and actually, what should be beyond that even? So uh, what's one or two or three steps beyond uh, giving up chocolate for Lent? And, and should I say the, the same people then uh, gorge themselves on chocolate on Sundays, uh, which, uh, which, is, which is never a good practice. <laughs> I understand that Sundays aren't properly speaking part of Lent, but I don't think that's the best way to do it if that's the penance that you're picking. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, fine on Sundays if you want to indulge a little bit, but always within moderation, of course. <laughs> but here, I'm actually glad you brought this this subject up. Um, for for smaller children, that's a very great practice, giving up those little things because they're like in the spiritual order; they're still infants, you know. Uh, and they should, you shouldn't give them terrible penances, like very stern ones, but just small ones, giving up candy, because it develops in them a sense of sacrifice that, you know, don't indulge, you don't want to indulge your children. And again, that's society inclines to, is inclined to that, to indulge children, to let them have their way. But Lent, if the parents... Um, make sure that their children follow through on their sacrifices. Lent, turn that around and teach the, teaches the children that this life isn't about me. You know, I have to give things up because there's a better life waiting for me. So little sacrifices for the little children and gradually work your way up. You know, change things from year to year. One year, maybe it's candy. Another year, television, maybe You'll lay aside your uh, your iPod for land or something like that, or only go to the computer when. Oh, you now need now to. you're asking now you're asking for the big stuff now, Father. You, you ventured <laughs> off into digital devices. I mean, I mean, we're not we're not we're not called to be monks now, Father. Now come on. <laughs> oh boy, no, but and see those things. That's when it when it hurts is when you know you found a good penance. When it hurts, um, because that's a great rule of thumb. <laughs> this, I mean, society is just that it's a fast food, everything at your fingertips way of life. Well, put aside some of that, focus on God. If you're carrying around an iPod all day long, and there's so many distractions, get rid of it during Lent, get rid of at least some of those distractions. And, uh, you know, you don't have to give it up for all of them, but maybe say, I'll only look at it at this time. But so there's little things like there, that. There, there, Father, there are, some, there are some people murmuring right now that this is a hard thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but no, but there's, you know, moderate. You don't have to give it up completely. People are, people would do well to give it up though. So, but you know, the, the, well, I, I think I think you're onto something too, there, their father. Is you're talking about breaking that chain. You're talking about carrying it around all day. Just because you're carrying it doesn't mean you have to be present with it. That uh, uh, you know, maybe turn it off. You know, when you know that you're not going to be on call for for whatever reason, try turning it off for a couple hours. See how you do with that. Yes. See, that's uh, very true. I just in case any of the uh, my the priests that I work with happen to be listening to this show. They might 
because I never seem to answer my phone. They might be teasing me or laughing at this point. But they have a father's you know, already you, chosen yeah. this penance. Is that what they're going to say? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but they're, you know, the people that with their cell phones, you know, there's, it's almost like uh, their dog's on a leash with them that the, you know, just like the owner tugs the dog and the dog goes along. So anytime the phone rings, the people have to answer it and they have to be texting and so many distractions. When's the time to focus on the spiritual life, not the external, more temporal things. So use it when you need, you know, even aside from those, I would sooner see people using their iPods, all of Lent and their children eating uh, as much candy as they want. I'd rather see them do that than to neglect the true penances that they should be doing, which are the ones that are opposed to their predominant fault. You know, every one of us have what's called a predominant fault. For each person, it's different. So that is... (laughs) Do some some of us have more than one, Father? Because I've definitely got more than one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's usually... We'll keep it down to one. (laughs) Okay. But... So that that predominant fault, if you sit down and do an examination of conscience, maybe that can be someone's penance as Lent. Find out their predominant fault, and then from there, go on. But the, the predominant fault is that fault that influences your way of thinking, judging, speaking. It influences everything. If you find out your predominant fault and work against it, you can literally eliminate about 85% of your daily sin. That is how, how serious that predominant fault is. And so once you find it out, pick a penance that opposes it. So if you're um, maybe a little bit timid or weak in some regard like that, then try to be more magnanimous, do bigger works, do more than you think you can do. Um, if you're inclined more to anger, well then give yourself some something that opposes that. If it's gluttony, then well the fast takes care of that, but you can also do other things. Um, but find your predominant fold and, and pick a substantial penance to give yourself, because that's the purpose of penance to make you better. If your penance isn't making you better spiritually. Uh, then there's not much point in it, you know? I'd rather somebody that that smokes, if he gives up smoking for Lent and is a grouch to everybody, I'd throw him a pack of cigarettes and say, smoke all you want, but choose a different tenant. (laughs) So I think think, um, one of your, you you can ask, and maybe, Father, you might be drawing from this, but I know one of your confrères there, I think Gertrude, tried to do this one Lent, and he was rebuked and told, uh, I think he was rebuked with a pack of cigarettes uh, um, because he did, he did turn into a big grouch. So you can, uh, you can, while you're doing your research on the Manipal, you can, you can ask about that story. Uh, but yes, I, I think, I think that's a, that's an excellent point. <laughs> yeah. So th- those would be some of my, my uh, suggestions. Well, I think, I think that's very good, Father. And I think more than anything, I wanted to get a, I wanted to give people some ideas. I, I think uh, it was one of our discussion threads on Trad Circle is uh, we were asking each other, you know, what what things 
each other has been giving up for Lent, what's worked in the past, and what what we might be giving up this Lent. And I, I really feel Lent is such a uh, and it's such an opportunity. Going back to that uh, communion versicle again, um, you know, if you meditate day and night, uh, your fruit the fruit will come at the time of the harvest. Right. Again, uh, might be good to wrap up our show thinking about the simplicity of the liturgical year side by side with the agricultural year. And I, I was in the Czech Republic recently, and I found out that the Czech calendar is functional as an instruction manual for farmers. Uh, the, the names are very obvious. So, for example, January uh, means ice. Uh, well, it, they don't, it's not called January, but the first month of the year in the Czech calendar is called ice. Uh, in June, oh. it's uh, June is called red. July is called redder. And August is called sickle. <laughs> huh. So, you know, in case, in case you're not paying attention, you know, you'll know, oh, okay, well, August must be time to harvest. Uh, <laughs> so the Czech, the Czech calendar is dummy proof for, for farmers. <laughs> And, uh, and, and in a way, the liturgical year is dummy-proofed for us as Catholics. You can't escape what the church wants you to be thinking about. And as we're heading into Quadragesima, um, we, the whole point of the liturgical year, this, this show that we're doing, is not to find out about what Mass you're celebrating when you show up there late to Mass. The goal is to think about the feasts ahead of time, and Father and I can only cover one, two, maybe three feasts ahead of time when you've got a whole month ahead of you. So the idea is for us to cover some things to get you into that spirit to do it yourself. Father, Father can't preview every, every feast for you, but if the idea is that you think about the feasts a bit more before coming to Mass or bringing, coming to that seasonal liturgical year, you're going to get more out of it. You're I was told a long time ago, Father, I'm sure you were told the same thing. You only get out of Lent what you put into it. But I suppose that's sort of a summary of the spiritual life, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, you have to. And that's actually one of the things I was thinking about. So, yeah, you have to you have to bring something to it to get something out of it. And that takes preparation. <laughs> so I agree with that 100 percent. Well, Father, as always, uh, thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you very much, Stephen. God bless you. Thank you. We at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you find this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments or would like to reproduce our work on your channel in some format, We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle at True Restoration or via email at mail at truerestoration.org. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.